my unnecessary pain and anxiety today if I can. Uh, for some of you, I might be too late. Uh, but for others, I might be able to help because some people actually think it's inevitable. But I want to say that there's no need for you to have a midlife crisis. Okay? Uh, now, that's good news, isn't it? Uh, you might say, well, what is, what is a midlife crisis? Maybe you're that young that you uh, don't even know. Uh, well, they say that it's a loss of self-confidence and feeling of anxiety or disappointment that can occur in early middle age. Uh, that, that is, you may question the things you've chosen to dedicate your life to. Uh, or maybe your goals and your plans don't seem to make sense anymore. Uh, professional health people uh, describe some of the symptoms like this. They say, you feel hopeless about your future. Uh, you feel the need for a new schedule or habit or challenge. You obsess over how you look. Uh, you experience bouts of depression, remorse or anxiety. You entertain obsessive thoughts about death or dying. You know, one of, one of the common beliefs about this stage of life is that you should, you should expect to face turmoil, inner turmoil, about your identity, your life's choices and mortality. A midlife crisis. And so as a solution, people try to feel youthful again as they struggle to come to terms with the fact that their lives are half over. Welcome to my world. Now, I want to confess that a few years back, I did have a, a midlife crisis for a couple of hours, uh, but then I read my Bible. Uh, and can I suggest that the passage that we're reading today is a good one to put things in perspective, to get our head in the right space, so to speak. Because if you're a Christian, if you understand this book of God's prophet Isaiah, then you have the vaccine that is 100% effective against midlife crises. Because today, not only are we coming to the conclusion of this kind of life-changing book of Isaiah, but we're being shown the conclusion and the outcome of all of history. But even more, all eternity. Now listen again to what God says in the first couple of verses in this last section of Isaiah. So if you haven't got your Bibles open, if you've closed them back up, uh, open them again, Isaiah chapter 65 and where we started the reading at verse 17, let me remind you what it says. Verse 17, 65. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. See, God is doing something that will cause those who belong to him to rejoice forever. It's a promise that puts the whole of our lives now into perspective. You know, a little while ago, uh, Francis Chan, uh, a preacher, used an illustration to put our lives now into perspective with the new heavens and the new earth uh, that God promised. He got a length of rope, I think you can see it there, he got a length of rope uh, that was too long, so long that nobody could, could see the end of it, uh, that picture doesn't show it, but at one end he painted the last few centimetres of the rope red, and the little red section actually re represented our life now, our world as it exists now that God promises is coming to an end. Whereas the rest of the rope that seemed to be endless is the new heavens and the new earth that are going to continue forever. See, God's people who are saying have an eternity to look forward to. But it's not just length of time. If it was going to be anything like our world now, we wouldn't actually want it to go on forever. You know, ask a Ukrainian if they want this world to go on forever. The great difference 
is that this is going to be an existence of unbridled gladness and joy forever. So that the former things, that is the struggles and hardships of this world, the injustices, whatever they might be, will not even be remembered. See, that is what God wants us to know and understand. The new heavens and new earth are what we are to fix our eyes on. They are what we are to live for. They are what we are to behold. Behold our God, is what Isaiah says. Behold the new creation that awaits us. See, that's what Isaiah is wanting us to lift our eyes to see and to understand. But so often we're obsessed with the now, with the little red part at the end of the rope, with the things of this world that are coming to an end. And if we do that, if we haven't understood Isaiah rightly, we haven't understood the Bible rightly, there is a future beyond this world. It's not vague. It's not pie in the sky when we die. It's real. It's tangible. And it's physical. And it's joyful. It's relational. It's purposeful. And it's just so good. Now have a look at the imagery that Isaiah uses to help us grasp just how good it's going to be. Look at chapter 5 from verse, the second part of verse 18 there. He says, For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. And it's worth pointing out here that the Jerusalem he is creating is the new Jerusalem. It's not the earthly rebellious city that has not listened to God and have gone their own way. Although it will certainly include Jewish people who have repented of their sin and put their trust in the suffering servant. But it's a place of perfect relationship. With God, he will delight in his people. It's a place of relational joy with God and each other. I mean, how good will that be? I mean, isn't it our relationships that are the source of our greatest happiness? Or very sadly, some of our most gut-wrenching sadnesses? You know, I was deeply disturbed just a couple of weeks ago to hear that there's been a massive increase in elderly parents coming towards the end of their lives, completely estranged from their children. It's a tragedy. But here there are no more tears, no more cries of distress. And death will never darken our doors again either. So even the poetic language at the end of verse 20 there that speaks of a, a man dying at 100 years old being considered young, it's not saying that there will be death, but rather that if, if it were to occur, it would be extraordinary. We know from places like Isaiah 25 and 26 or Revelation 21 that we've just read that death will not exist in the new heavens and the new earth. No more tears, no more cries of distress over anything. And it's hard for us to kind of wrap our heads, isn't it, around how wonderful the new heavens and earth will be. But, but read on because in 21 and 22 it speaks of things like stability, of security, confidence and endless enjoyment. Look at 21 and following. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree, there shall the days of my people be. And, and without going into detail, because time doesn't allow it, verses 23 to 25 speak of peace, of contentment, of no fear. The attentive, the attentive care of our Heavenly Father and in fact, harmony throughout all of God's creation. See, here was God's promise to Israel 
even as they languished under God's rightful judgment, exiled in Babylon, this is what they could enjoy if they turned back to him. Here is God's promise for us today. I mean, next term we're going to be looking through 1 Peter in the New Testament together, and in it, the Apostle, um, the Apostle Peter reminds Christians that the world, as we know it now, is not our home. We are exiles in a world in rebellion against God and facing His judgment. This is not our home. The new heavens and earth is our true home. That is where we belong. But before we move on to reflect more on this kind of glorious new creation, I want to remind us of where we've been in these last two major sections of Isaiah. As we come to the end, I want us to kind of remember where we've been and what we've been thinking about. Because Isaiah is not just a message for Israel and Jerusalem. It's a message from God for the whole world. God's dealing with the nation of Israel is a, a picture or a model of how God deals with the whole world in our rebellion against him. Now, we, we've seen over the last term that there are two big things happening in the book of Isaiah. Uh, we've first seen that uh, the Jerusalem of Isaiah's day is a complete mess. I mean, despite God's goodness towards them as his people, they are overwhelmingly wicked and rebellious. And so God has, remember, has promised to judge them by sending them into exile in Babylon. And it's a punishment that is both catastrophic, but also absolutely deserved. And yet, secondly, running alongside, Isaiah has given us a picture of a new Jerusalem that's absolutely glorious and wonderful. It's a place where God himself would dwell with his people. And so the big question has been, uh, if I can steal David Jackman's words from him, and we've seen it in our growth groups, how will the holy, faithful God make his unholy, faithless city into his holy, faithful city? And so there's been this massive tension going on throughout the book of Isaiah, and the great problem that stands between these two things is exactly what we saw in the kids' talk, it's sin. Israel's rebellion against God, because that, at the heart, is what sin is. It's rebellion against God. Now, of course, we all suffer the same disease. And so as those who have been saved already, we know that we were those who deserve God's judgment. It's the great dilemma that these final two sections of Isaiah have actually been answering for us. So firstly, in chapters 40 to 55, Isaiah has answered the question, how does God save? And the answer given so powerfully, particularly in chapter 53, is that salvation is possible only through the work of God's suffering servant, Jesus. The forgiveness of sins comes only through the one who was pierced for our transgressions, who was crushed for our iniquities, the one on whom God's judgment fell so that we could have peace with God. See, it's only through the suffering of Jesus on the cross that judgment is paid for, that sin is dealt with and forgiveness offered. That's how God saves. But the question that remained was, who? Who does God save? And so this final section of Isaiah that we've been working through, chapters 56 to 66, answers that question. Who is in and who is out of God's glorious new city? Who are God's people who will take their place in the new heavens and the new earth? And the opening um, sentences of chapter 6, I think, make it very clear. Have a, have a look at chapter 66 there in front of you of Isaiah uh, from verse 1. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? 
and what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. Uh, Andy cautioned us last week, remember, to make sure that we know who the real Jesus is if we're going to put our trust in him. And it's the same thing here. If you're going to respond to God rightly, you better be clear about who he is. He is the Lord who sits enthroned as creator and ruler of everything. And here is what God is looking for in us. Let me just read on there. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Now, a, a contrite spirit is a repentant spirit. It's aware of the damage that sin does. It recognizes and admits its own failures and is sorry for them. Now, we saw it back in chapter 59. Those whom God saves are those who repent of their sin, who turn back from their rebellion against God. See, to be saved is not simply trusting in Jesus. It's to both repent of your sin and trust Jesus who paid the penalty for your sin. And it's only the humble who are willing to do that. You know, proud people are, very, are rarely willing to admit their failures or to own up to them and to seek forgiveness. And what a proud nation we are. You know, we've been idolising pride for decades now. Uh, we celebrate the arrogant for believing in themselves and not letting anyone else tell them what to do. See, pride is the fundamental sin from where all others follow. And you know, right from the very beginning, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden believed the devil's lie that they could become like God and therefore determine their own destinies. And look at what we've done to the glorious world that God originally created. And so if we are to be welcomed into God's glorious new heavens and earth, then this is the one to whom God will look. See, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. See, to tremble at God's word is uh, not to be afraid of it, but to revere it. It's the same as the Bible's teaching that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. To listen to God and to trust him and to live his way is a life of blessing and freedom. And so our attitude to God's word is our attitude to God himself. What we think of God's word is what we think of God. How we treat God's word is how we treat God. And so if you ignore God's word, if you think you know better than God's word, if you willfully disobey God's word without repentance, then you should be afraid because God will not let the guilty go unpunished. See, the problem with Israel is that they would not listen to God and accept his free offer of salvation. And as we've seen over and again, they, they continued in their religious rituals, expecting God to owe them something. But God doesn't need human temples. He doesn't need religious works. He doesn't need those things look at verse 3 of chapter 66 he says he who slaughters an ox is like one who kills a man he who sacrifices a lamb is like one who breaks a dog's neck he who presents a grain offering like one who offers pig's blood he who makes a memorial offering of frankincense like one who blesses an idol these have chosen their own ways and their soul delights in their abominations now, these verses are actually quite shocking he who slaughters an ox like a murderer that is a good practicing jew 
is like a murderer if they don't listen to me, God says. If you're not listening to me, Israel, you're as bad as the worst of Gentiles. It's shocking what he says here. Even those in Israel are out if they don't listen to God. See, God can't be manipulated. Their religious sacrifices and rituals don't mask their wicked hearts. Look at verse 4 there. I also will choose harsh treatment for them and bring their fears upon them because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not listen. But they did what was evil in my eyes and chose that in which I did not delight. See, no religious practice, no good deed in the hope that God will notice can substitute for a humble and contrite spirit that deeply reveres God's work. Only God can save. Only God can restore. Only God can bring new life. Only God can raise up a people that belong to him who will live and enjoy him forever. See, that's the point of the next section that we didn't read from verses 7 through to 14 there. Let me just pick it up from verse 7. Read a little bit of it. It says, Before she was in labour, she gave birth. Before her pain came upon her, she delivered a son. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall a land be born in one day? Shall a nation be brought forth in one moment? For as soon as Zion was in labour, she brought forth her children. Shall I bring to the point of birth and not cause to bring forth, says the Lord? Shall I, who cause to bring forth, shut the womb, says your God? See, Zion, or Jerusalem, same thing, is described here as a mother giving birth without the pain of labour. In an instant, not, a, not simply to a child, but to a whole swathe of children. I mean, the image here is of God creating a new people, a new nation. Out of old covenant Israel, the new people of God are born. In other words, this is a picture of the church. That includes the faithful remnant of Israel, but also people from every nation. And from verses 10 to 14, out of this mother-like Jerusalem, God brings great blessing and joy to his people whom he loves and delights in. So we see there, don't we? Verse 10, there's rejoicing. In verse 11, they drink deeply with delight. Verse 12, there is peace and glory. Verse 13, comfort. Verse 14, again, more rejoicing, but notice also, there's justice. Look at verses 15 and 16 of chapter 66. For behold, the Lord will come in fire, and his chariots like the whirlwind to render his anger in fury, and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment, and by his sword will all flesh, and those slain by the Lord shall be many. See, we cannot skip over the fact that, that to rebel against God and to refuse to listen, listen to him is to face his terrifying judgment. And we actually, can I just say, we do no one any favours to speak only of the great goodness of God and the wonderful joys for those who belong to him if we don't also warn of the devastating reality of God's judgment. There's nothing loving in that. See, God is a gracious God, a merciful God, slow to anger and abounding in love is what the Bible tells us. He's a God who has sent his own beloved son into the world to die on a cross to save us. A God who is holding out his arms of welcome even now and inviting everyone to come back to him. 
but he will not allow wickedness to go unpunished forever. See, we see it again there in verses 17 and verses 24. But in these last few verses of these 66 chapters of Isaiah, the focus is on God's glory and on his salvation. Now, in in verses 18 and 19, we're told that the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues and they shall come and they shall see my glory and I will set a sign among them. That is, God would set up a sign by which he would gather people from all nations, all languages. In other words, one day, God would do something that will point to the fact that he can judge and that he can save. For Isaiah, that time actually lay in the future. But for you and I, we look back to that sign. We look back to the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And listen to what Jesus himself says about his death in John uh, chapter 12, verses 27 to 33. Now, in this passage, I think it's on the screen, Jesus is uh, speaking to both his disciples and a great crowd of people just before he's going to be arrested and crucified. And this is what he says. He says, now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. You see, here is the unmistakable sign that Jesus is both judge and saviour of the world. And it's the sign that displays God's glory. A glory that is seen in his grace and mercy and love of sinners. He offers salvation and forgiveness even to his enemies. And he wants the nations to know that there is salvation in no other name but the name of Jesus. And notice that God has a plan here in this passage to send people to the nations. I mean, just as Isaiah, who saw God's glory right back in chapter 6 of Isaiah, he received God's forgiveness and he was sent with with God's plan of salvation to Israel. Well, so now God is sending those of us who have seen God's glory in the cross of Jesus, sending us to share that glorious news with every nation on earth. Uh, Look at verse 19. And from them I will send survivors to the nations, to Tarshish, Pul, Lud, who draw the bow, to Tubal and Javan, to the coastlands far away. They have not heard my fame or seen my glory, and they shall declare my glory among the nations. See, the various nations I mentioned are just, if you like, representative of nations in the farthest reaches of the world. But God wants to be known by all people everywhere. God's salvation is for everyone who repents of their sin and believes in Jesus, which means that CMS, the Church Missionary Society, are right to train up and send our people to the nations of the earth with the saving message about Jesus. Howard and Tricia Spencer are right to spend the years that they could be using to slow down and take it easy to instead head to Belgium to help get the fledgling university ministry off the ground over there. Josh and Nikki are right to head overseas to a difficult place to take the good news of Jesus. And so is 
Seth and Dave Dorman, who work with AFES, the Australian Fellowship of Evangelical Students, to spread the good news of Jesus across university campuses in Australia. So is Randall and Paul and Neil, who have taken time off work to do theological study at Moore Park, Moore College, sorry, to better equip themselves to serve Christ there. Moore Park doesn't do much theological study, I believe, but um, Moore College does. Or maybe someone like Tony Linderback, who has decided not to work in her chosen profession her entire life so that she could serve the local church rather than earn an income and make a name for herself. Or Zoe and Rachmar, or Kevin and Tracy, or Roger or Lara, I could mention heaps, who, tr- who reduce their work hours, take time off work so that they can work and serve Christ and making him known. Or perhaps it's you who go to work or uni or school or raising your kids that you pray for your friends and your colleagues and you ask God to give you opportunities to speak to them about Jesus. We praise God for those people and those who are like them. Pray for them as they serve Christ. Prayerfully consider yourself how you can be like them. Because can I say that so much worse than a midlife crisis is the person who gets to the end of their life and in their pride refuses to humble themselves before God and to listen to his word of forgiveness. That's the tragedy. Because God's judgment is real. And it's terrifying. And we don't want anyone to face that. But only those who hear the message about Jesus, the suffering servant, and who humbly tremble at God's word, they are the ones that will be in that glorious new city, the new heavens and the new earth that God is creating. Now we know that we're not there yet. We still live in a world of sinful pride where people will not listen to God. And that, of course, makes life hard at times, doesn't it? Especially as we live out a genuine Christian life. But I want us to end this series in Isaiah rejoicing. Rejoicing in our certain glorious future. That's where, I want, that's where Isaiah wants us to end. Now, most conferences that I've been to recently have been reminding me of the grief and the pain that we're experiencing living in this sinful, broken world. Which, can I say... That's helpful, that's good, because we need to be aware of that's the reality of life in this world and how to live in it. But I think one of Isaiah's way, his grand purpose, is to do exactly the same thing by doing it another way, that is by helping us to fix our eyes on the glorious and certain future that is ours, already guaranteed because our trust is in the Lord Jesus. We chose the title Behold because we see it over and again in Isaiah, but because we all need to capture afresh the glory of God, the grandeur of his grace, and the unending joy that is ours for all eternity in Jesus. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. Friends, let's pray. Our gracious God, we are so thankful and so grateful for all that you have done for us in and through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, you are good and gracious God. You are loving and faithful. You are a God who brings joy and hope and love and peace into our lives. And Father, we experience that in in part now, but we long also for the new heavens and the new earth that you are creating, where there will be no sense of sin or sadness or pain or death or crying anymore. 
Father, please keep lifting our eyes to see what a great God you are. Please help us to keep lifting our eyes to remember where we belong. We are those who belong in the new heavens and the new earth. And we only get there through the work of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we thank you for him in Jesus' name. Amen.